Uh, I want to start off by saying welcome to the Listening to the Land podcast. And I am so excited today to be in conversation with Sophie Strand. And I am so grateful for her work in this world and and her mind and her brilliant way of expressing our relatedness with the more than human world. Thank you for that, Phil. Um, and I'm really grateful that there are people like you that exist and can find me across <laughs> distances. Um, <laughs> miracle, some kind of sporulation event. Um, yeah. I, you know, I so often problematize the digital world, but it does act in, a, in an organic way. Um, mm -hmm. so. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Nathan, what are your thoughts on this episode today and what we're about to talk about? Yeah, <clears throat> just really feeling into the the deep interplay of animism that weaves throughout your work, Sophie, from your social media account of cosmogony to all your different writings and essays across all these different publications and the books that you've written and are currently working on. The mm. threads of animism are so profoundly woven between um, relations with the other than human world, relations with myth and with story, um, I just really feel all of the layers of how animism permeates your work. Um, and I have so much gratitude for that. And I have so much uh, excitement to explore um, the weavings of animism through your work and how the ways in which two curiosities about how, how animism informs your work. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I don't, I was just actually thinking about how it's probably only recently that I've realized that animism is what I am and that mm -hmm. it's a word that describes what I do. I've just always, people who know me have always known that I have very intense experiences with plants and with animals and that mm -hmm. um, I do think that there's an element of that that is my parents and that they um, moved me out of the city, moved our family out of the city when I was three, and then raised me on kind of like a, a slapdash pretend farm. And when I say pretend farm, there was nothing organized about it. We just took in every rehabilitated wild animal that needed help and adopted every animal that showed up. And it got crazy pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so I think it was really it's funny, I think that someone asked me recently when I had my eco awakening, like when I woke up to the fact that everything was alive and I was like, I don't know, I think it's always been that way. <laughs> my human awakening, where I realized that maybe like human beings were worthy of relational attention <laughs> mm. and, um, and thought. Yeah, so that's a kind of like little blurb about my experience of animism is it's a word that I've like realized is a hat I'm already wearing um, but I for so long had no idea of how to even explain what it was I was doing or experiencing. What about you guys? I would love to hear about your personal journey into or your recognition that you were already wearing this experience. Mm. Yeah, Nathan, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting. Like, I feel there's a similarity in that of when I came into relationship with the word, it was realizing like, oh, this is, is a hat I'm already wearing. And it actually reminds me of 
Robin Wall Kimmerer's work um, and one of her books, Braiding Sweetgrass, where she acknowledges like we're all animists until we're taught to be not animist. Mm-hmm. Um, and for myself, it really, I've shared a story on one of our previous episodes around a very particular Ponderosa Pine who um, was given death in a very like a Western dominant culture way that ended up being a deeply traumatic experience for me and holding that wonder question of like, why was this so traumatizing? And even in my 17 year old mind saying to myself, like, this is just a tree. Why am I so grieved by this? And then having an experience where I heard a voice in the back of my head say, they aren't just a tree. Like they're not an it, they, they are in fact a she. And that really opened the door for me to delve deeper into this world and to begin the process of the unlearning of the world being a mechanistic, materialistic um, cosmology or a worldview. Hmm. Yeah, I love that story. Um, As for me, you know, one of my earliest memories, and I think I, I shared this in another episode as well, but uh, I'll keep it brief for that reason. Um, one of my earliest memories was being on a walk with my grandma. I was probably three or four, and we were walking along this relatively urbanized stretch of river in Poland. And um, I remember standing by the edge of the river, watching the light reflecting from the river onto the underside of a bridge and there was like a tree next to the river and I remember the light play and the leaves and the tadpoles in this river and this impression that was a certainty in my body that everything I was seeing was alive everything right there was no sense of like trying to like think about it I just knew in my body that oh yeah the light's alive the river's alive the tadpoles the tree and even the bridge to some extent right had some some semblance of life and so Sophie I love the way you talked about animism as being a hat that you were already wearing because honestly yeah I think that's true for me too it has been since I can remember and there were times in my life where I think I was forgetting that you know I think that I was so surrounded by people who saw the world so differently that I wondered if like, am I just crazy? Am I like, am I making this up? And really it was moving to Washington state and having uh, the privilege to, to be out in more wild spaces and also to meet more humans that are like-minded that um, yeah, I realized, oh no, this is, this is valid. This is real. You know, this has value. This has, this is essential part of being a whole human being. So, yeah, I could say more, but I think I'll say that for now. Yeah, I think sometimes I think about that it actually takes a lot of unseen cognitive work to shut out the aliveness. That takes a significant Mm -hmm. amount of sensory gating to um, shut out all the voices all the time. And that we, it, 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 it must necessarily fatigue us, I think. Yeah. To, ha- to constantly be culturally, cognitive- cognitively having to enforce this false sense that everything is just a blank slate. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I, 
absolutely agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, so, something interesting to think about is, you know, machines are man-made, and the whole Cartesian idea that animals and, and plants and our machines is so, it's just insane. Um, yeah. it, you know, a machine is, is, a, is made by a human being. <laughs> um, right. So, yeah, the, the mechano-reductive worldview is very solipsistic. It doesn't seem to actually adhere to any science that I've ever encountered. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think that, yeah, um, I think that a lot of scientists are actually probably animists, especially in the way that they interact with their subject matters, but that the way that science is written about and produced and culturally like uh, engaged with doesn't allow for that kind of spiritual element to ever come into play. I mean, yeah. imagine devoting your whole life to a, like a virus that no one will ever see. <laughs> like, <laughs> animus to me, yeah, I think about that a lot. Yeah, I, I, I was uh, listening today to an interview you had done, Sophie, with another podcast series, and you mentioned something about how even scientists still practice theology to some extent. And yeah, it's that, just, it's the same dualism. It's just been given a different name. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Know, spirit, spirit and matter becomes mind and matter. <laughs> right. Know? Right. Yeah. And I, I love, you know, like being willing to openly admit that, you know, even as a scientist who you're supposed to be essentially an atheist, right? Like according to stereotype and certain cultural expectations. And yet, most scientists I've met, even though they maybe won't openly talk about it, I think that they do feel that sense of animacy and, you know, deep relatedness. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think someone whose work has really informed me is Rupert Sheldrake. And he says that, you know, the people who actually practice science don't believe in the kind of science that a lot of people believe in. Right. But it's people who know the least about it who think it's the most straightforward. Um, right. Yeah, it's very bumptious and, and complicated and, and mostly it's a lot of questions without answers, I think. True, um, yes. Yeah, but I, I really like to also think about Robert Bringhurst, who is a poet. I don't know if you guys know him, he's my favorite, but he's a, he's a poet, he's, he's, all, he's kind of transdisciplinary. Um, mm. There's so many, wears so many different hats, but he always says that myth is the attempt to explain the world by personifying elementals, putting them into a narrative. And then science is a very similar urge to explain the world, but that it's about um, trying to measure the elements, trying to actually reduce them to a kind of schematics. Um, so mm -hmm. myth, myth and science are actually very closely linked. They're just storytelling in slightly different ways. That makes sense, yeah. yeah. Nathan, I feel like you have something to share. <laughs> yeah, I have many different <laughs> thoughts are coursing through me with what you're speaking to and just this acknowledgement of story and narrative. Yeah. Um, and even feeling like how that, like what rose in me when we were, when you were speaking to like the um, exploring science without the animism like scientists actually engaging with their subject matter in an animistic way but then having to reveal that and show that to the world um, in a non-animistic way 
like the word that rose in me was dis-ease, um, yeah. like a dis-ease in having to reveal this in a way because of the cultural element and how there's even actually like a story that's at play there, a cultural story that says we cannot reveal this in this way. And so just in those, in the threads that you've been speaking to, even through the myth of personifying the word of Robert Bringhurst, love Robert Bringhurst, incredible, incredible poet and author. Um, I'm really like catching, yeah, these varying threads of story. And so I have like curiosities around in your work with myth and in your work with um, re-enlivening and re-enchanting our relationship with the more than human world, what do you feel is the role of story and narrative in these realms? Well, story is something I've been thinking about a lot because I, I think that we have centered monomyths and the monomyth of, of anthropocentrism for a long time. So I'm not super interested in human stories. I'm interested in the stories that don't necessarily use language or don't necessarily occur inside our temporal reality that are working on longer timescales. Um, so the stories that I'm interested in these days are the ones that are decidedly non-human. Um, mm -hmm. And my, what I've been trying to do with myth is to reroute it in its ecology, to, to take these myths that have been deracinated and abstracted from their ecological wisdom and put them back into context. And then also to compost them a little bit, trying to mulch them and see what they sprout. Do they have new information for us mm. in the time of ecological disease um, and chaos of emergent systems and shifting climates. Um, yeah, for me, story is not something that belongs to us. And I think that story can become problematic when we kind of attach it to this postmodern idea that everything is a story and, and nothing's actually true, that we all live within our own stories. And I think Bio Komalafe has done a lot for explaining how this can be a really reductive, um, disembodied way of interacting with storytelling. So for me, stories are only interesting when I can see their roots when I can see what they're, what they're really telling me about the land they sprouted from. Mm. Um, so, and I also, I think the thing is, I don't think there's any universal story. I think there's a story for every ecosystem, for every footstep. Um, so I always wanna honor the, that we're all connected, but not everything is connected to everything. Mm. Mm. That's a good, good nuanced distinction, yeah. Yeah. There are gradients, there are, um, you know, gradients are what make water flow. The differences create friction, they create movement. Um, and it's important to honor those, those fertile boundaries. Yeah. That's beautiful. I think this, this might be a natural point in our conversation to plug your work a little bit, Sophie. Would you <laughs> <Okay>. mind? <laughs> Fine. Um, Would you I mind uh, telling us a little bit about what, what you're working on and when uh, roughly when it's going to be published? <laughs> um, what am I working on? I am a tornado of um, sporulation events. It's um, hard to package, but let me try. Um, <laughs> my first book of nonfiction essays called The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lichenized Lovers, Trans Species Magicians, and Rhizomatic Harpists Heal the Masculine will be out this spring with Inner Traditions. And then my eco-feminist historical fiction reimagining of the Gospels from Mary Magdalene's perspective will also be out from Inner Traditions, I think within a year. Wow. And I have two other books that are 
about to be finished, which will hopefully also start to enter into the, the actual publicity cogs within the next year. Um, but until then, I, I do a lot of talks, I do workshops, I have them all up on my website, www.sophiestrand.com, and then on all of my different social media platforms. So if you want to um, hop on any of those events, a lot of them are free. Um, and I also, I try to talk to everyone who talks to me. I do, I, I think like maybe this week it will reach like overflow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do, Amanda Palmer, I don't know if you guys know of her work, yep. um, mm -hmm. but she's been really inspiring to me because she really teaches that connectivity and the depth of connection rather than the superficial width of it is the important part. Mm -hmm. So the, imp the thing that has been crucial to me in sharing my work has been using it to actually connect with real people and have real conversations. So as long as I can do that, I will continue to do that. Mm. Wow. And I'm hearing the threads of the rooting in that when you were speaking yeah. to like the rooting, like you're not interested in stories unless they're rooted back into their ecological web. I'm hearing that in like the desire to be in live conversations such as this to root your work in an actual embodied way. Yeah, and in a real place, you know, I always, you know, when I read a lot of um, philosophy or theology or modern criticism, I always want to ask the author, like, okay, what tree is outside your house? Um, <laughs> tell me about the weather yes. past year. Like, do you actually have practical knowledge of landscape? And there are some authors who really do. And those ones I'm like, okay, yeah, you, I trust you. Um, mm -hmm. And the ones who don't have that, I, I don't understand how their information can be nourishing if they're not paying attention to the lived reality of their ecosystem. Mm, love it. What yes. authors do you really connect with? Do you really feel like offer that, um, that route? Mm, that's a good question. Or thinkers, uh, whoever, yeah. Yeah. Um, honestly, what's arising for me isn't really an answer to that question but it's it's a it's sort of a humorous struggle i'm having so i've been trying to find some good fantasy stories to listen to on my drives and i listen to yeah <laughs> and i listen to like a ton of podcasts and i listen to you know lots of audiobooks um especially on animism and you know all sorts of things but lately i've been trying to find a good fantasy story and i am starting to get really irritated because of that thing that you just pointed out, which is that, you know, I'll listen to part of a book and it's just like two people talking in a closet, essentially, right? This is my big criticism of most modern literature, which is there's no, you don't build an ecosystem. There's right. no texture, you have two people, that's not an ecosystem. Where are the family members? Where are the friends? Like when you write a piece of fiction, I used to teach a lot of writing, especially to younger, younger people, younger kids. I'd always say like, okay, this is not about two people in New York City dating. This is about like the bumptious, entangled, complicated reality of like families interacting with weather systems and yes. exodores and land spirits. Like, come on, bring it alive. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for presencing that. I mean, yeah. And yeah, anyway, Nathan, please. <laughs> yeah, I have... Um a partial answer but I also I also have a question too um so I'll speak to a little bit of some of these authors who really inform me and also just naming it out loud so I don't forget it that I have a question for you in regards yeah. to this um yeah like initially 
Well, Robin Wall Kimmerer definitely comes yes. to mind. Um, Linda Hogan yeah. oh. also yes. comes to mind. Um, Martin Lee Mueller. Um, oh, yes. And David Abram. Honestly, there's this acknowledgement for me that the only authors I'm interested in reading are the ones who are rooted. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's, I don't know if it's like an intuition experience or just a sensory experience, but I can really feel when I'm reading um, a thinker or a philosopher, I can feel when they're not connected to a place. Mm-hmm. I can feel it in their language. I can feel it in the human centricity of their language. Like there's, there's all these layers where you can really sense it. And I'll acknowledge for myself, I immediately get turned off. Um, mm-hmm. I just acknowledging, yes, there's probably some things to be harvested from their work. And I'm not interested. I'm not interested if it's not ecologically rooted um, in a place. And with that, uh, my question is, who are who are the beings who in, inform you in your work? Who are the who are the trees outside your door who yeah inform what you do? <laughs> Three hours later. Um, <laughs> no, I mean it's an impossible question. Every, I begin my day every day by naming every being fungi, stone, indigenous ancestors, plants, mm. relationships, weather systems that I know that inhabit my landscape. And I like, I bring them into being, I acknowledge our relationship so that as I go about my day, every decision I make is entangled with those other lives. Um, so wow. that question could conceivably take up, it takes about an hour, I think, maybe sometimes Ooh. more. And I do it as I like run and do my yeah. stuff in the morning. So to like, to root it here, what about today? Yeah. Um, who, today, who are the beings you greeted this morning? I, I have to say there are a couple of beings that are really asserting themselves today who kind of showed up and they're like, we would like to be on this podcast. Nice. <laughs> and one of them who showed up right before is a giant red-tailed hawk who I've known for a long time. Um, and he actually perched right above me, very close, closer than I've been to him in a long time and, and eyed me and swiveled his head at me and you know I talked to him for a while we've actually we have a little bit of a bargain we have a secret bargain I've asked him to do some work for me while also promising to um, be in relationship with him so yelling at him a little bit I was like come on like help me out (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I think that that humor is important in these relationships that, that there's a kind of fetishizing of of this of this idea that we have to be super super reverent but mm. it's, it's complicated treat them like you would a friend like you know like a family member treat yes. them like family you, you know you're not gonna bow down in front of your family you're gonna say like what's up <laughs> um, i mean sometimes you you want to be reverent but you also want to be truly relational so the red-tailed hawk and also i am having a very intense experience with this fairy ring that has been sprouting up near my house. And I knew they were Amanitas. And I think mm. they're death caps. I've been having a lot of conversations with my colleagues. They could be these false parasols, which are also hyper poisonous. They're very, whatever they are, they're hyper poisonous. And I've been picking them up all summer, which is fine. You can pick poisonous mushrooms without getting poisoned. Yes, that's right. You have to ingest them, but still very, they've been really talking to me. Um, and they've fruited, which means like they've come up. It's one individual, this this underground mycelia. Um, but this mycelia has fruited about 10 times right behind my house and, and huge, like this, like, you know, this isn't gonna come through with the podcast, as big as your head. Um, wow. Giant, 
giant mushrooms that are very poisonous. And whenever I go sit with them, I get this intense feeling in my mouth and my head. It's almost like they assert themselves in this flavorful way. They're not communic. Their story isn't communicating through language or through noise, but I get this like hot ginger, almost electric taste. And wow. it's a taste that says, okay, yeah, don't eat me. Like, that would not be the way to interact with me. I'm very powerful. <laughs> um, but yeah, it definitely gets my attention. So yeah, those Amanitas, those giant Amanitas. Hmm. What about you guys? Who would you like to bring into the circle today? Nathan, you first this time. Yeah, I acknowledge like, um, so I've mostly been on the computer today doing work. And there was this point where I was sitting on my bed right over here on the computer, like I needed to transition away from the desk. And once the moment I sat down over there and started doing work, all of a sudden I heard this tapping and there was this chestnut back chickadee that landed on my window and it was just tapping on the window like, hey, <laughs> and then <clears throat> they flew up into the tree and then this whole, and the oak, the black oak that's right here outside my window and this whole flock of chickadees followed them. Then a humming, Anna's hummingbird came out and it was a very clear, just like a very clear message for me of like, okay, I need to step away and I need to step outside the door and into the land and give these beings my attention. Because honestly, <clears throat> with my workload, I really haven't been giving them the attention that they deserve and engaging with them in conversations that feel in alignment with who I am. Um, and now being here in this conversation, there's definitely, yeah, this essence that, that chickadee and that hummingbird and all of their kin of the other chickadees in Black Oak were like, hey, I, we want to join your podcast too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, welcome to them. Yeah, what about you, Philip? Uh, I don't want to come across as copying you, Sophie, but uh, <laughs> but oh. uh, Redtail Hawk. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really interesting moment at work where I was standing talking to two coworkers and we saw pigeons flush off the, the rooftop of a building. And this red-tailed hawk was doing these slow, lazy circles in the sky, just kind of seeing how the pigeons were gonna respond. And there's something about the timing of it. I was just like talking to my coworkers and I just went, wow. And normally my coworkers don't, you know, they don't really pay attention to this kind of stuff, but they were kind of sucked in right along with me. And they looked up and the sunlight was coming through the wings and the tail of this hawk. And we were just kind of like drawn in and drawn out of ourselves as well for a moment. And it was, um, it was magical, you know, and we were in a super urban area in South of Seattle. And um, yeah, I, I would just was like, oh, okay. You, you very much want us to focus on you right now. <laughs> and you are very, you know, as, as you said, uh, an assertive presence right now. And yeah, so yeah, they're, they're definitely very much in the forefront of my mind and sort of maybe not tapping on, on my wall or my window, but very, very present. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, hawks have been a through line with my whole life. I think I think there are definitely like totems or mentors that come in for certain periods of time and kind of dispense a very intense um, medicine or information, but then there are, are the companions. And I would say, it's funny, Philip, that you said red-tailed hawk and heron, because I'd say my, my longest companions have been red-tailed hawk and heron. 
that mm. whenever they show up, it feels like the needle coming up when you're sewing something, kind of showing me that I'm everything's being stitched together in the right way. Mm, beautiful. From, from the um, from the mythic for me, yeah. Mm. Mm. Wow. Really like that description. That's that's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, it's theirs. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's another thing is like more and more I feel like those moments of dumbfoundedness that, that occur when a being asserts itself are when my best ideas occur. So they're probably not my ideas. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a moment of, of, you know, I always think of Zen masters. It's been um, Zen masters. You would go and get the transmission face to face. You would receive the teaching, and so I think there that there it's that moment of of receiving the transmission, the dharma. Mm, beautiful, yes. Sophie, I'm curious um, if I may ask this practice of greeting yeah. all of the more than human world, um, like from the weather patterns to beings like the red tail and these others. I'm curious, what are the roots of this story? Where yeah, what are the roots of this story in your in your cosmology? You know, I actually think I'm finally beginning to understand how it came to be. I would say it was great urgency and need and mm. needing of a ritual that really I felt like it reminded me of, that I had um, I had a community around me. Mm. Um, so. I think it goes back to when I was at the end of college, I was very, very ill and very, very tired with the culture at the college and taking my academics super seriously, just kind of like living outside of this college culture while inside of it. And I would wake up super early every morning and I lived on the side of the river next to these rolling farmlands. And I'd walk about six miles through dawn through these farmlands down to the river and greet the same animals every day. And this was just a year long period. It wasn't a super long time, but there was something about that somatic experience of actually greeting all these animals every single day that felt so nourishing that no matter how hard the day was, that experience was waiting for me on the other side of a sleep. It, it crowned my day. It reminded me that no matter what human scuffles or um, annoyances happened, there was a bigger world that was holding me. And then my life took off and a lot of other things happened and I moved mm -hmm. and I moved again. And there was not so much time for that same kind of peripatetic, slow dawn walking greeting. And there was a moment where I, you know, it's funny, Nathan, you mentioned being in front of the computer and having to remind yourself, I was ghostwriting children's books for a big media company, which I will not name because I've signed NDAs about all this stuff. But I was writing very popular children's books under a pseudonym and I was writing one a month. I wrote like seven in a row. Wow. And um, it was, a cr and also writing my own books and teaching workshops for high school students. It was just kind of a time and I was in a very bad relationship and I was living in the middle of nowhere and my life just felt like grind, like serious mm -hmm. grind. And I knew that I was getting ungrounded. I was like living in nature, but I wasn't actually particip participating in it. Mm. So I would wake up every morning and I would be like, okay, I have 
30, at that point it was like 30 minutes just to like drink my coffee outside next to this river. And I need to summon all the beings that I can't necessarily go greet. Mm. Yeah. So it was like, it was, wow. it was a, it was a way of trying to ground myself in a very tumultuous time. Mm. Well, not a bad answer. Um, it's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have any kind of animist rituals? I don't know if that's even a question, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's totally a question. I mean, it's funny because that was going to be one of my questions for you, but that conversation that just happened actually really is such a beautiful practice. Um, yeah, actually, uh, with Nathan and I, we're going on our regular walks and we would go to a place called the Redmond Watershed Preserve. Uh, we would always stop at the edge of the forest and we'd take a breath and we'd greet the forest and, you know, we'd sort of take a moment to just wait for the forest to respond before we took a step into that space. And um, it's definitely a common practice that I use by myself, but it, it was especially special because we were together and we, we started making a habit of it. So every time we had an opportunity to go on our walk, we would stop and take a breath and say hello and, you know, greet the land. And yeah, and I, I find that a very accessible and really powerful way to, to interact. I think it's powerful to ask a place or a forest for permission to enter. And also to start realizing that sometimes you get a no. That can be yes. a really powerful right. way to start realizing that we have intuitions that don't necessarily fit into our European epistemologies, but yeah. Absolutely. I, I think it's so important in, in the conversation we're having to, you know, come back around to the uncentering or decentering of human narratives and human importance because yeah, there are places where we go and the land's like, no, you're not no. welcome. Don't don't come here. Go yeah. go somewhere else. You're not welcome here. Right. And we need to be like paying attention to that and accept that that is what's being asked of us. And that we're not superior supreme beings. We're just another animal and we need to be good relate relations, right? Mm. Anyway, sure. Nathan, I know you're you're gonna share something too. Yeah, well, there's that um kind of bridges into that because asking permission is a big uh part for me honestly acknowledging like um like breath and language like i'm gonna let's go on a, a small tangent here speaking to david abram's work but the acknowledgement of like breath and breathing as like this inherent reciprocity with mm. allness and mm -hmm. i think of language as a way of shaping my breath of like naming like my intentions and what as I speak my intentions like my tongue and mouth are shaping the way in which I am relating with the world mm -hmm. and so there's this acknowledgement for me that most all of the beings that I speak to don't speak English but there is this conversation that's unfolding by the shaping of my voice or shaping my breath through my voice and in this layer of um, asking permission, I feel called to share like a, just a brief story of a really potent experience I had a number of years ago, where I was in a deep conversation with this great horned owl, and there was very much this invitation to come into the land and engage in a ceremony with the land. 
And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I went and had dinner, got my, my ceremonial allies all prepared and ready, and then went to enter into the land. And when I asked permission to go in, there was nothing. There was no response, neither a yes nor a no. And I was just kind of starting to get anxious because I was like, I felt so like it was just such a clear message that I was supposed to be in this place on this eve, but now I'm not getting a response. And then I had this intuition, just this voice in the back of my head name, like you're not asking the right question. Mm. So then I changed my question and I asked like, may I be your kin tonight? May I come into a kinship with you this evening? And then right as I named that, this feather just fell and then landed right in front of me and then the wind took them and they just danced like right across the threshold that I was waiting to cross and so there's this layer for me too of like even sometimes when we receive that answer of no when asking permission there's also this like underlying layer for me of like feeling that connection is a part of the fabric of the land and fabric of the cosmos so then now I'm in a place of when I receive that no, it's like, okay, then well, how do you want me to relate to you? How are you wanting me to be in connection with you mm. and seeking out the right question that gets the response of yes? Yeah, that is such a beautiful, beautiful story. Mm. And um, quickly, I felt it like on my spine that moment. Mm. And it, mythologically, the right asking the right question is always one of the most important hinges, narrative hinges, mm. that you can't, you know, you can be standing in front of the door and until you say open sesame, it's not gonna open. You have to, we're so focused on answers and on conclusions uh, and on climactic events that we forget that most of life is interrogative. Mm. And it involves a certain kind of trial and error with curiosity involved. Um, right. Yeah. I like to think of, of living interrogatively. Ask, yeah, asking enough questions until you hit the right one. Because someone who doesn't want to answer isn't going to, they're just like, that's boring. I'm not going to answer. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I like that. May I ask, what are, what are some questions that you're sitting with, Sophie, in this time? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, a lot of questions. Um, personal, macroscopic, microscopic. I think I'm, I am a question. I'm, I'm a mm. whole client of many, many questions. Um, my whole life is just open-ended um, <laughs> these days. But there are some questions that I have, which this is, this is one I haven't talked about perhaps publicly, which is I do feel that my time in the Hudson Valley is ending. Mm. And I, I, I wasn't born here, but I was raised here. And then I stayed here, not necessarily by choice, but because of health reasons. I was close to the city. I was close to a support network of people who could help out with, with health, health crises. And I, I stayed here, I've, I've stayed here in a kind of happenstance way again and again and again. Things have happened that have kept me here. And I have gone deep with this land. I love it so much, but it also affects me extremely negatively. Like mm. I'm very, very primed to the pollen here. I have connective tissue disease and the constant pressure changes are very bad for me. Mm. Um, so in a, in a weird way, I've been feeling my experience. I like to be a, to pay attention to what I'm receiving. And the message I've been getting intensely from the land is we love you. 
but you need to go. And it's been a little dangerous. Like the flavor of it has been, you know, you will need to move. And if you stay for too long, it's going to get really dangerous for you here. Mm, (laughs) Um, And this past summer, it's been the question I've been having is I've been going to a lot of my favorite places and feeling that they give me a no. That they, they, they're like, and not in a bad way. They're just like, you're complete. And if you come here, you will get stung by a yellow jacket, which you're deathly allergic to. Like oh. there have been a lot of tells for me. And the, the strongest of which has been, there was a field behind my apartment and it was really, really beautiful and overgrown with all of these grasses and had butterflies every summer. And someone owned the lot, but had never developed it. And, um, and there's, a, I shouldn't really be saying this because I don't want anyone to come and screw, screw with it, but there's a rare American chestnut that's still alive right behind my house. Whoa. Um, a, like a very small group of people kind of know about this. Yeah, it's not officially registered because I think if it got registered, people would come and like take cores of it. I don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. But um, the people who owned the lot started to develop it and they tore up the dirt. I'm looking out my window right now at it. It's gonna block my view of the chestnut, my view of the sky. It's been constant construction. And that felt like a like in my bedroom, pretty much like seeping in this very loud assertion of like, you need to go. So a question I'm living with the landscape is what do I need to do to honor you? Like what mm-hmm. last information do I need to get from you? And also where am I heading? Where, where am I going? <laughs> yeah. mm. no. wow. What questions are you guys sitting with right now? Well, I just want to say that I really feel the heartache of that and, and the fullness of it, you know, like to, for you to be listening that closely and to both feel loved, but also hear the you need to go i mean that's that's really beautiful and profound so yeah it's like the mama bird being like you need to fly right (laughs) (laughs) right yeah and and you know and that is sometimes the hardest the hardest part of life right is that transition i mean for birds it definitely is the hardest time like uh yeah i have some local cooper's hawks and that's where they're at right now they are bumbling through life their parents just stop feeding them and they're like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. Do I kill this dog? Is, is it dog food? Is... <laughs> um, yeah, I have so many questions like you. I, I feel like I have more questions than I have a life span to answer. <laughs> um, I, I think right now, one of my questions is locally where I live. So I live you know, in the land of the Snoqualmie peoples and um, in the foothills of the Western Cascades in Washington. And this year, there's something that happened. We had the extreme heat wave, right? We had uh, for four days, we had over 100 degrees of temperature, which is practically unheard of. And we actually hit 116 degrees, which is absolutely unheard of in recorded history. And one of my questions is, because I observed some animals arriving in in numbers that I've never seen before. And they're mostly animals from the opposite side of the Cascades where it's hot and dry. One of my questions is like, are they telling us that this is the future, right? Like this is what 
like we we know this you humans are slow but we know this that you know from here on out the summers are going to be longer they're going to be hotter they're going to be drier um because yeah we, we started getting lazuli buntings right and i saw one a few years ago for the first time in this valley and this year i saw three and a female which means they probably bred you know so like and that's a bird that is you know very rare on this side of the mountains so there's so many questions arising around you know like how should i be attentive to this change and what what are the birds telling us and uh, in what ways can i learn to be resilient in the face of this change because in some ways it's heartbreaking honestly right like this summer has been so long so dry we've had massive fires in this state both this year and last year and there are landscapes I love that are just permanently altered, right? Including a canyon that Nathan and I really love. And we got to visit right before you left for California. But um, yeah, there's so many questions. And I think a lot of them for me right now are around how can I learn to be more receptive, attentive, a better listener to all the other than human voices and actually be a good relative and like, be of service in a way that is helping everyone transition in this chaotic time. Yeah, I would love to just take a moment to acknowledge the the depth of the paradigm paradigm shift that you're speaking to, Phil. Um, mm. And like the wells of grief that are held in that. Um, yeah. As well as like the depth of necessity to be giving our attention and to be listening in authentic ways to mm -hmm. Yeah, like acknowledging like there's this there's this language um, I've been coming across recently of like we need to stop climate change. And well, we can't. That's not that's actually not something that's within our capacity or has ever been within our capacity. It's really about adapting with it and moving with it and mm -hmm. recognizing ourselves within the interconnectivity of this web of beings. And I'm just really like feeling the threads of that in your share of how to be mm, uh, a supportive relative um, and, and this kinship, this kinship web of kinship web of Western Washington. Mm -hmm. um, so I just really want to appreciate and acknowledge you in that. Mm, thank um, you. Yeah. For myself, um, I'm in this place of like, I just moved <laughs> um, to a land that I've actually like never been in before um, here and what is now known as Sebastopol that was a shared territory and is continuing to be a shared territory of the Southern Pomo and Coast Miwok peoples. And like the, the question I'm holding is like this, it feels like a really big question of like, how do y'all want me to relate to you? Um, there's this acknowledgement of so much of my animistic rituals of my ways of showing up and being in relationship with the more than human worlds. Um, are rooted in Cascadia and that's where their roots are and I'm like this metaphor that was gifted to me by a, a dear friend of like being this plant that has grown in Cascadia and rather than like replanting myself of just like taking one of those seeds and being that seed and then going and planting down here now in Sebastopol, mm -hmm. California 
and there's this acknowledgement too, yeah, that my animistic rituals, my ways of showing up with the more than human world are very much rooted in Cascadia. And so now rerouting, rooting in a new way and yet old way here in this land, I'm very much in this journey of questioning and discovery. How do y'all want to relate? What kind of relationship do you want to have? Like, what kind of relative am I to you? Um, yeah, how do you want me to be? Um, how do I want you to be? Like, how do we want to be together? Um, and so these questions that are really like rooted in relationship and how do we want to show up in relationship together? And there's this acknowledgement too that I'm moving, I've moved to a place that has been hit by the climate crisis pretty drastic. Like we're in a very severe drought right now. Um, yeah. That is scary. Uh, it's acknowledging like, talking to some of the locals who have been here for a while, this acknowledgement, like right now, this season, um, the patterns of the season have generally been like coastal winds and coastal fog in the morning, burning off in the afternoon and reaching like a peak of 70. And yesterday it was 101 degrees. Um, oh. And so there's like this, and the waters are just like some of these creeks that are perennial creeks are dried up and gone. Um, and for the first time ever. And so there are these layers of like acknowledgement that the climate crisis is very alive here and hitting here in, in a very visceral way that is very tangible and felt by all of the beings of this land. And so I'm feeling that anxiousness of like, I want to be of service. Like I want to help, like, what can I do? And at the same time, like, I don't have a depth of relationship to, of knowing how to be of service of like, what is this land really asking of me? Um, how can I be a healthy relative to this place? And so I'm really leaning in and moving at the pace of trust, um, as Adrian Marie Brown says, and just trusting and listening and holding these open questions with the land of how do you want me to be? How can I be of service to you? How do you wish for us to relate to you? Um, and really leaning into that, leaning into those questions. Mm. Moving at the pace of trust. Yeah, that is, I love they that. They were thinkers, yeah. Mm. Um, and also, they also say such a great thing, which is like, don't go to communities with a, <laughs> or landscapes or ecosystems with an idea of what you're gonna offer. Ask them right. if they even need you. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what they might need, you know. Um, I think about that a lot, especially in terms of infrastructure and climate technology, just like ask the land what it needs. It probably needs us to do less. Um, yes, right. Thank you guys both for sharing those incredibly nuanced um, reflections. Um, it's, always, it's always really, really um, helpful for me to remember that other people are thinking in this way. Mm -hmm. in your daily life it's not necessarily the normal mode of interaction with land absolutely yeah thank you sophie also for yeah for sharing in that way it's um very uh heartening mm -hmm. yeah yeah, and I, <laughs> yeah i also just want to acknowledge like um this common thread in all three of our shares of like the like not fetishizing relationship with land of it being this transcendental experience. It's a very real relational experience of yes. 
the whole nuance of what it means to be an emotional being. Yeah. And, you know, landscape is, it is a composite of a lot of different beings too that make up a bigger being that sometimes are much more granular. Um, there are going to be different flavors and different sensibilities. Um, yeah, I always want to acknowledge that even walking down from this park behind my house to the river, it's just like a one minute walk. There's a total flavor change. Um, hmm. Yeah. So, everything's uh, patchwork. We're mm. patchwork. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that gives us, I think that there's such a imperative culturally, especially in America, to have an identity, to have a stable name, to have a stable presentation or identity. And I think that it's important for us to think in a more lunar way that we're always, you know, we're always present. Some, even on a new moon night, the moon is there, but we are always in flux, we're always changing. Um, yeah, and that, I think that is a little bit more spacious, especially when it comes to gender identity, to sexuality, like, you know, I don't know what I am today. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> And then even in there, there's like a layer for me as I'm sitting into, like I've recently been learning about lunar solstices and lunar equinoxes. Mm. Now, like a solar one is over the course of a year yeah. where the lunar one is over the course of 18 and a half years before the difference mm. between the different solstices of the moon. Um, so there's like this layer of it, like the necessity that it is intergenerational work that mm. It's intergenerational tracking that's happening to be able to understand the movements of the moon. And I feel that's also holds true for this work of being in relationship to land and like delving back into this cosmology of belonging as it's an intergenerational journey and intergenerational tracking of patterns to really fall back into an identity that's earth centered. And that's not, uh, so bounded by the sterile fiction of individuality. I mean, this work is not going to be done in a lifetime. It's not gonna be done in my story. Right. Um, and I think that that's something I've been really playing with recently is okay, I don't want to have work that only belongs to me. I want to have work that could be handed off. Mm. If, I should, if I should perish, it could be handed off. You know, mm. and I, that it's only very recently that authorship has become so tied to a specific individual. It used to be you took on the mantle of Homer, you took on the mantle of an Orphic hymn, you stepped into the story of Arthur and you extrapolated on it. On it. Um, and I've been thinking that I would like to create stories that could be retold and changed, like ways of making stories that mm. don't necessarily belong to me. Mm. Yeah. Oh, interesting. They're generational. Like I could open up this as being like, this is not just about me as being some kind of figurehead. Mm. Yes, I like that. That kind of reminds me of like uh, Gregor Gehete um, in his book, Native Science, The Natural Laws of Interdependence. Yeah. <laughs> he has this uh, point in it where he's kind of like teasing and making fun of like the Western dominant culture being like, you know, like us indigenous people, like we had, we had prophets too. Um, you're not the only like culture who's had prophets. They're just the difference is like our emphasis is on the teachings, not on the prophets themselves. 
so yes. we forget the names of our prophets. It's the teachings that we don't forget. And feeling that in what you're speaking to and talking to like just this bundle of the, the bundle of the work for the attention to be on the work and not the people who are doing the work. Yeah. And I always think that the big, the big shift in Paleolithic to Neolithic cultures is the art shifts from being about patterns, weather, shapes, and mostly animals and plants to heroic individuals and humans and human stories. And so it's this, I think that there's some, there's a problem when we start to just tell human stories. Mm. And, and, you know, the hero's journey, the monomyth. Um, I'm not interested in, in, in monomyths and heroes. You know, if you're going to tell a hero's journey, it has to involve like 45 heroes of <laughs> different Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like the idea that, you know, we're not uh, the lead in our story, but just a character in a greater story. Yeah, not right? a character. Um, it can be a frightening realization, but it can also be very tender. Yes. Uh, because then all of a sudden, it's not on you to find the grail. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think a lot of techno-narcissistic approaches posit us as the main character like we're right. the only people who are gonna quote unquote stop climate change and instead of saying like maybe we don't know best today <laughs> right um yeah more questions i yeah i i think if anything i live i want to live a more interrogative life um i'm gonna live the question a little bit more much food for thought yeah <laughs> yeah that's uh, my one problem is that I love the more than human world, but I also love to talk. Um, <laughs> you know, I have a lot of Irish ancestors and then I have Southern, Southern ancestors who were Irish before that. So I just have like, you know, I used to joke when I was really, really little, I was obsessed with dinosaurs. And I said, if we were dinosaurs, we'd be called blabberdons. Um, <laughs> yeah. Nice. Love to wax poetic. And then afterwards, I have to check back in and say, like, was there actual content or was it just going? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I really appreciate what you're sharing. And I noticed that, you know, even in this conversation, we've had these pauses, these natural pauses where we're all taking a breath and we're all letting the other than human have some input, you know, even on us as individuals, you know. And um, yeah, and I, I'm excited about your energy, Sophie, and your sharing, like you're, <laughs> this is great. This is great. Yeah, I, it's mm. fantastic. And I'm really excited about your writings coming out too. I can't wait to read them. <laughs> well, I, I would love to, my dream is to actually be able to travel, to meet you guys, to have a, you know, a slapdash book tour where I get to actually go to landscapes and be there. Mm. <laughs> and um say hello to people say hello to birds um yeah, yeah. hopefully that that will come to be i am corona has been such an interesting experience i mean i guess my one last question for you is you know animism can get stuck in a kind of um charismatic species corner yeah um, and I, I do think that my one thing is that i always want to go for the uncharismatic species you know the black hole <laughs> virus um, the mycorrhizal systems, not just the fruiting body mushrooms. Um, and 
I, I do, my one question for you is, how does your animism relate to the microscopic? Mm, good question. And the unseen beings, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I can Nathan. start yeah. off if that feels good to you, Phil. Yeah, please. Yeah, there's this acknowledgement of the, within the last year, I've actually started leaning into they, them pronouns. Um, and a big piece of that was when I learned that more than 60% of the DNA of my body is not human DNA, that I am actually, in fact, a multi-species assemblage of so many entities. So like, uh, it's, it's unfathomable, honestly, like, you know, we talk about like the infinite of the universe, um, but there's also like an infinite just within our own bodies and within the bodies of the beings around us. Like it's actually, uh, there's this acknowledgement for me that it's actually un, it's impossible for my my human mind to grasp the multiplicity that is this person that is these per- these persons you so and you feel in front of me and leaning into they them pronouns was actually a journey of honoring all of these beings who are actually also a part of me because when others use he him pronouns in regards to me there's this acknowledgement for me that you're actually only speaking to the human of me mm-hmm. because it's only the human of me that's a male all of these other microbes and bacteria and viruses and like this multiplicity of beings are non-gendered beings. And so leaning into they, them was a way in which, or can this continuing of leaning into they, them is a way in which to, as others speak to me and of me, that they're actually honoring all of the microscopic beings that composite who I am. And I think I'll leave it there for now and answer this question. I'll pass it to you, Phil. That's a good answer. Uh, yeah, you know, um, I live in the Pacific Northwest, the land of plentiful rain, hopefully soon, <laughs> uh, waiting with bated breath for the rain to come back. Um, yeah, I, I think mushrooms, I mean, funguses in general and mycelium are endlessly fascinating to me and magical and um the the transition of the summer into fall here where i live is something that i anticipate with my whole body i mean there's like a there's like an electric charge building up in me right now in anticipation for mushrooms popping up because well lots of reasons so i think they're really beautiful they're mysterious they like you know pop out into visibility in soil where they're mostly invisible right and also because one of my relationships with some of the species of fungi is as a food, as a being that I eat. And there's a whole process for me of like hunting for mushrooms and, and the way that that feels and the, the respect and, and the, the playfulness of it and the mystery of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I could talk about mushrooms all day. Like the, there's, a, there's even an ancestral connection for me because I'm a first generation immigrant from Poland where mushroom hunting is still normalized, right? And is still part of culture. And like my grandfather was the first person in my life to like bring mushrooms in as a, as a relative, right? As a being that was taken from, from the land and used as a means for nourishment. And um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot, there's a lot I could say on that. And, you know, and, and one of, and again, coming back to questions, like I have so many questions about 
how is the pattern of the fruiting of the edible mushrooms going to be different this this season because we've had such an extreme heat event right it's i mean the soil is drier in the forests around here than i've ever seen it and we've had a tiny bit of rain not enough to even soak past the first half inch of soil so yeah i'm like what what's gonna happen who's gonna show up and when and why and you know, so yeah, my brain is just like ready to explode with questions. <laughs> mm. Mm. Think of mushrooms as the rainmakers, because you know their spores act as nucleated raindrops. They create right. So yeah, it's like they need the rain to pop up, but they also will create the rain if they pop up. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing. I'd love to turn that question back to you, Sophie, and your relationships with the microscopic beings of the cosmos. <laughs> um, I think I've always been really, really paired or wedded with the microscopic. Um, in terms of just general interest, um, but also in terms of health and um, having had my microbiome wiped out by successive experimental treatments um, mm. that failed and kind of destroyed my gut that was already not in a great place. Mm. And then having to think about my body as being a composite of bacteria, good bacteria, bad bacteria, monologuing pathogens. And um, I think the real, I've always been hyper aware of interstices, of cracks, of the places where things don't come together. And I have a connected tissue disease. So it was interesting and that diagnosis came late, well after this interest was in me. Mm. And so something I think about it are, are the smalls. And that's a word that goes back to Shiv Watkins um, and their work with um, microanimism, which is, I don't know if you know about Shiv, but. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Um, and I'm really interested in the margins, in the beings that um, are, probably above our pay grade and control everything have been around for much longer than us <laughs> are discreetly non-visible. Um, sometimes I think that I'm being thought perhaps by the bacteria in me more so than I am by me. And in mm. a weird way, some people could find that frightening, but I actually sometimes think, well, they may know better than me. <laughs> right. And they may know, know better where to place me and how to coordinate my movements. Um, one of the jokes in my family has been that in the past couple of years, I've had a fungal inoculation and that you know, I've always loved and been very wedded to fungi, but it's been obsessive perhaps since like hmm. 2016. Um, and that my, you know, my writing isn't really happening through me, it's it's some kind of sporulation event. They're in me like the ophiocordyceps that takes over that ant and they're just like coming out of my head. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I love I love to think about the world as shimmering, as being mm. plush with matter all the time. That even as, as you brought up David Abram, like you know, our breath is filled with microbiome and sediment and dust. There are 50 million tons of spores in, in the air. We're constantly metabolically looping with viruses and bacteria and, and like just carbon. Um, so I, I think that there's something about those material weather patterns that I find very exciting. 
Um, yeah. And I think one of the hard parts about Corona has been that it is all inspiring. Mm. We have been brought to our feet by something that we can't even really um, trap in a box. Right. Or see. Yeah. <clears throat> Feels like a, a deep humbling on a cultural level for us, you know, especially in America. If we let ourselves be humble. Right, I, right. <laughs> the interesting thing is to, has been to see how people react to, you know, you see someone fighting someone invisible. <laughs> and you, there's that joke, that like meme of someone who's like having a fist fight with themselves. Like it's been interesting to see how that some people dance with it and some people have a fight where they end up hitting themselves in the face. Mm. Yeah, all hail the smalls. I'm here for the, the undesirables, um, for the black gold <laughs> and the death caps and the Wolbachia. Um, if you don't know about the Wolbachia virus, go take a dive. Oh, will do. <laughs> it's curious, like there's a, there's a like bridging back to the origins of this section of the conversation around like the trap of charisma within animism <laughs> and just like the honoring of these beings, like that these beings are also worthy of our attention. And I'm curious if you have any practices of like honoring the microscopic, of like ritually honoring them. Um, hmm. I think that our bodies are doing this work for us. And I think that sometimes we make things harder than they are. And I think that it's actually more about a somatic, a, a meditating and coming back into your body and your senses such that you realize that you are registering this stuff even if it's not happening in the way you think you are. You know, when you pass over a mycelium, maybe you're gonna burp or like feel like your chest is constricting or you smell something or you taste something. Like we're reacting to microbiomes and to, to mushrooms and to changing climates all the time. Our bodies are like wind chimes. Mm. And we have to work hard to not be making music all the time so your body is the instrument just listen to your body more your body's going to tell you where you know it's like with a speaker when you put salt on it and it's playing you see all these patterns that you wouldn't see necessarily yes. your body is like that your body is being played by all of these different microbes all the time and you know i think the most dramatic of that is when you get sick when your body actually puts on this grand theatrical event, it says like, oh no. And so that that is the kind of the alarm bell when you haven't been listening for a long time, I think. Mm. And it's, I always wanna say, it's interesting. You know, our senses create a psychedelic experience, experience for us all the time that we are gating out, that we are cultured to gate out. But mm. if you start to play with one sense, a little bit more, you know, whichever one you are drawn to, your sense of smell, your sense of hearing. When you start to think about, you know, um, Bernie Krause's idea of acoustic niches, that ecosystems, birds, animals eat, begin to find their tunnel of, of, um, of melody so that they can reach the other species, the other, the other, um, mm. their other kind without mm -hmm. penetrating or overwhelming the song of something else. Mm -hmm. And so you could, you could even go into a forest day after day and start to think about like, well, what's my acoustic niche? What sounds mm -hmm. am I hearing? 
Mm. And um, yeah. So I, I think the microscopic is playing us. It's, it, it's using us as an instrument and we make music with it. Mm. I mean, just give someone some mushrooms <laughs> or, and this is actually, I think this is the best way. Um, single celled yeasts, fermentation, wine, you know, start to ferment something, make your own wine, make your own bread. That is really a way of getting in touch with the microscopic where mm. that ruach, that breath, that spirit that is honored across religions and spiritualities fills, you know, fills the bread, the skin of bread with life, mm. fills the, um, the apples and, um, <laughs> with an intoxicating experience. Yeah. I would say even having a glass of wine and feeling that move through your body mm -hmm. is a pretty microscopic animist experience. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you. Love that perspective. Yes. Mm -hmm. Dionysus or whatever God is, you know, your favorite fermented God. <laughs> God of wine. There are lots of them. Yeah. Do you have a favorite fermented God or deity? Me? Yeah. Dionysus for sure. Um, yeah. Although I think that, that Jesus is a, um, is a, is a fungal God that gets corrupted. Um, mm you see these vegetal gods they they're part of this this very beautiful looping experience where they die and they go back to compost into the ground and then they sprout up again and they create their fermented beverages that create chaos and upend you know cultural paradigms <laughs> um you know osiris and dionysus and um pan um mm. But then Jesus is totally disembodied. He's evaporated. You know, his body disappears from the tomb. So he is a god of wine and bread. You know, your two fermented, um, your, your fermented beverage and your fermented food. Right. Um, and then he is disembodied. So he, he, he removes himself from that virtuous cycle, creating the room for the abstraction that will become mind matter in a Cartesian dualism. Mm. Whoa! <laughs> that... for it. There's your grand unifying theory that's probably totally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, there's a lot to dance with there. That's. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you guys have a favorite fermented god? Mm. Or fungal god, or you know. Or maybe a better question is maybe, and this is probably a place to wrap up, just in terms of me and my old lady bedtime. Yes. Do you have a favorite story or myth that you'd like to share? Mm. Nathan? Yeah, I will preface this with like this, the answer to this changes on a week to week basis. Um, just depending yeah. on like who I'm sitting with and working with at the time. Um, there's a story that I have, a myth that I have been working with through this summer and actually like had some experiences of like where they rose inside of like before I even like practiced telling them before I ever like went into that space they just rose up in me and I read them like seven or eight months prior to this moment and then they just came out verbatim from within me because it was very much like I was just the hollow bamboo that they were flowing through and the story is Papa Boy grow, or Papa Bois grows up. Um, it comes from Trinidad and Trinidad and Tobago. 
um, a really beautiful story about the human nature dichotomy and reweaving the human back into a healthy relationships with a more than human world. Thank you. Mm. Will you send me some information about how I can learn more about that? Totally. I could say I have a PDF actually. I could send your way. <laughs> awesome. Um, I'm, I'm chewing on so much right now. It's hard for me to use words. <laughs> That's good. We, we should always be, I think, without words. I think when we <laughs> words too easily it means that we've already lost ourselves <laughs> you know i've i've encountered a few different uh fungal and vegetal gods in visionary states and um like i went to peru and had an encounter with with ayahuasca and that was really really powerful uh, but I, I do feel more intimacy with mushrooms um honestly like i've been really curious about my own pre-Christian ancestral relationship to uh, mind-altering mushrooms and and the gods associated with them, and uh, that's that's been it's been like such a burning curiosity for me to learn more about that, and it's so hard to find because Poland was Christianized a long time ago. You know, it's it's mostly a Catholic country. And so much of that knowledge is lost, you know? And so I've sort of been on this journey of like trying to find my, find some sort of little in to, to learn more about that. And, and I know a lot of that knowledge stays alive in the land, right? It, it lives in the trees, it lives in the mushrooms, it lives in the, the soil and the animals and the, the air. But since I'm, an ocean and a continent away, continent and a half away. Um, yeah, it's been hard. It's been hard to try and connect to that. But, but yeah, I, I do feel very moved by, by mushrooms and their power and their ability to sway us and allow us to see more clearly and allow us to see more interconnectedness. I think that's all I'll say for now because <laughs> I'm, I'm running out of words. They're literally not coming out of my mouth. So. <laughs> the greatest sign of reverence. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I actually do. It's so interesting. Someone who is a specialist in Polish folklore Ooh. just sent me an article about mushroom rituals. <laughs> so oh, this feels like well, a whole little... I mean, I may have to go back and do some looking to find it because I receive a lot of messages, but I will send it your way. Please, um, please, please. Yes. Fantastic. Um, mm. All right. Well, um, I just want to once again say thank you, Sophie, for joining us in this conversation. I feel like we covered a lot of ground, uh, created space for a lot of questions to come out. And um, yeah, just wow. Thank you. This has been really exciting, inspiring, and just, it's its going to leave us with a lot to work with, for sure. <laughs> Let's just say that. And for, for inviting me into this sacred space. Um, mm. I think that there were probably a lot of other participants in this conversation. Mm -hmm. a, crowded, a crowded experience in the best way. Mm. Yeah. I'd like to add my voice to the gratitude and just the webs of 
microscopic and macroscopic beings that wove these threads together for us to come together on this eve and connect through these virtual realms and yeah so much gratitude to you all that you've shared um questions you've inspired and just really feeling that both for myself and phil and then also all of our listeners that there's going to just be so much to sit with and to ponder with which recently i was in a conversation with a friend about like one of the greatest gifts we could ever receive is someone to like give us something to think about um and like even we started talking about like asking that going up to strangers and just asking them like what's something you've thought about that i could think about that for a time and just sharing that to name you've given us so much to think about and feeling i can in a, like to an extent speak on behalf of the listeners and say that i feel that you've given all of us a lot to think about so thank you so much for this gift of thinking as robin walkimer says all flourishing is mutual all mm. of my thinking is it happens interstitially it happens <laughs> with other people mm. it's a good note to end on yes <laughs> great thank you guys this has been um to be super super blunt and you can keep this in the podcast i guess if you want this was a rough day for me um personally and this was a really really grounding really amazing conversation oh mm. wonderful really well, i'm glad we could be part of bringing some light to your day <laughs> it was really just um it was a breath of of mushroom smoke filled complicated not necessarily answered air. Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. It, it was the right medicine. Yeah. Um, mm. And also, like, I'm on your team. Um, let me know how I can share this and share your work and be in relationship with you guys because I'm like really, really behind what you're doing. Mm. Thank um, you. Yeah. Thank you, Sophie, so much. And same. <laughs> yeah. Likewise. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> you want to do i'm not asking yeah at this point in my life i'm just kind of like what's next i'm like ask spirit like <laughs> um and then the fun guy come up and be like coordinating so. <laughs> mm. okay we'll have a beautiful night and i hope that you guys have some more more than human encounters before you go to bed all right uh, same to you